Hear the word of God from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 and verse 17. This reading will be from the Common English Bible. After these things, the Lord commissioned 72 others and sent them on ahead in pairs to every city and place he was about to go. He said to them, The harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his harvest. Go. Be warned, though, that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Carry no wallet, bag, no bag, and no sandals. Don't even greet anyone along the way. If anyone, wherever you, whenever you enter a house, first say, may peace be on this house. If anyone there shares God's peace, then your peace will rest on that person. If not, your blessing will return to you. Remain in eating and drinking whatever they set before you, for workers deserve their pay. Don't move from house to house. Whenever you enter a city and its people welcome you, eat what they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and say to them, God's kingdom has come upon you. Whenever you enter a city and the people don't welcome you, go out into the streets and say, against you, we brush off the dust of your city that is collected on our feet. But know this, God's kingdom has come to you. I assure you that Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than that city. The 72 returned joyously, saying, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. One more word of personal privilege that I nearly forgot, but I shouldn't, and that is that my family is here for about eight years' time. They have been unable to see their son, their relative, preach, and uh, not only did my parents and immediate family come, but (laughs) there's a whole sea of brown people that's sitting right over here. (laughs) You can't miss them. If they look like they're related to me, it's because they are. But especially my mom and dad and my brother, uh, they're, they're here. My dad, I hope it's okay if I say this, dad, well, you're not going to stop me now. Here it goes. <laughs> my, um, my dad had a stroke last weekend, and he spent pretty much the whole week in the hospital. And toward the end of the week, he kept telling any nurse, doctor, or healthcare professional, you better get me out of here before Sunday, because <laughs> the day that I've been waiting for for eight years is finally and so he's here, and I'm so glad that he's uh, well enough to be here. And uh, I think we're going to try to get a family picture in front of the courtyard fountain. Would that be okay with you all? Just nod your head. Okay. All right. Let's have a prayer together. Gracious God, you have met us in this place. Open up our ears and our eyes to see the words of your scripture and your very heart in a brand new way so that we might see abilities and promise in the very present moment. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that there's only one place in the entire gospel when Jesus experienced joy? Did you know that? It's probably a surprise to us. After all, Jesus was fully human. He experienced the full gamut of human emotions. We know that in other parts of his story, he felt hunger, sadness, fatigue. We would have expected that Jesus would have felt joy lots and lots of times. But instead, there is only one recorded place in the entire gospel where Jesus felt joy. Hard to believe. But here's something that's even more mind-blowing to think about. That there exists right now, even in this very present moment, the potential for that very same Jesus to experience that very same joy. And it's up to us. Think about that. It uh, shouldn't surprise us that the only time that we know of Jesus experiencing joy is in the words that Linda just read for us from the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke, after all, loves joy. He uses that word joy more than any of the other Gospel writers. From cover to cover, from beginning to end, the characters in Luke's Gospel are feeling joy left and right. At the very beginning of the gospel, when Jesus was born, when the arrival of Jesus was announced, we find Mary visited by the angel Gabriel and her response in Luke, joy. And then she and her relative Elizabeth got together. And when Elizabeth experienced the news of Mary, Elizabeth felt joy. And then when the angels burst on the scene and told the shepherds of the arrival of Jesus, they said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. But then, even at the end of the gospel, at the end of the story of Jesus, after the resurrection, when the disciples experienced the resurrected Jesus for themselves, Luke says that the disciples felt joy. Luke loves joy. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that if there's any gospel writer that's going to talk about a joyful Jesus, it's going to be Luke. What's surprising, perhaps, is the context in which Jesus felt joy. Because here we are in the passage that Linda read for us, this peculiar story about a time when Jesus sent 72 of his followers out on a very special mission. And when they came back, Luke says, they felt joy. You heard the portfolio of the mission brief yourself. The details of the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples were this. He said, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? He said, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves, but I don't want you to carry any money with you. No purse, no wallet, no pocketbook, no credit card, no checkbook, no cash. I want you to depend only on the hospitality of others. 
Don't provide for yourself. No money whatsoever. And when you get in the town, I'm going to warn you right now, Jesus said, there are going to be some people who don't like you. They're going to reject you. You might even be despised. You might even have an entire village of people who want to slit your throat. Doesn't this sound like fun? Jesus said, in the event that you find a village that is not cooperative, then simply go to the edge of that village. Turn and face the people in that town. Shake the dust off your feet and yell at the top of your lungs, God's going to do a Sodom and Gomorrah on you. (laughs) Doesn't this sound like a fun mission? Except, when you think about it, we have been on a similar mission ourselves for the past eight years. Notice for a moment that when Jesus sent the disciples out, he sent them out separately. He told them to break down into small groups and go in different directions. He didn't want a wandering herd of 72 followers storming simultaneously into the town, going from city to city as one block group. No, he said, instead, break up into small groups, go in different directions in towns and villages, both near and far. Now, what's interesting is Luke, Luke doesn't exactly tell us what cities they went to. He doesn't tell us what village they did. He doesn't even tell us the time frame in which the disciples were gone. I always find stuff like that interesting. Because whenever there's a gap in the narrative, it's always the Spirit's way of inviting you and me to fill that gap ourselves. What towns did they visit? How long was their mission? Well, let's fill in. I'd like to think that these followers of Jesus were gone for eight years. From 2007 to 2015. I'd like to think that a small group of followers of Jesus went far away into long distant cities and countries around the world. One group of travelers went to Cuba. One group of missionaries went to Nicaragua. Another to Honduras. Another group of teenagers may even be leaving today for Guatemala. Another group of travelers went to South Africa. There's a whole host of followers of Jesus over the past eight years who decided to be missionaries right here in town in a wonderful, fanciful kingdom called South Tampa, evangelizing the the streets and the neighborhoods and the homes and the neighbors of people right in the local vicinity. Some of the followers of Jesus were even bold enough to apply for a passport and venture north of Kennedy Boulevard. I see that joke never gets old. (laughs) Then there was one small group that was called by Jesus to go to a very far away place, to a very cold place, (laughs) a beautiful, loving place called Cherokee in a little 
nestled corner of a kingdom called Iowa. That's where these disciples went. That's how long they were gone. I'd like for us to imagine that those were the cities. And that was the time in which those folks were gone for a while. Because then, in verse 17, we jump right back into the story. And Luke describes what is happening on July 12th, 2015. Here's what he says. The 72 returned. Now, of course, this is Luke we're talking about here. He can't just leave this statement alone. He's got to give us a glimpse into our hearts. They not only returned, they returned joyously. Of course, Luke, I mean, this is a day of great joy. I mean, for heaven's sake, you all gave me a standing ovation. Don't, don't do that again, because I'm going to expect it every Sunday. But I imagine that that's exactly the sentiment and feeling that these disciples felt back together because it's what we're feeling now. But listen for the incredible, vivid way that they reported what they experienced. When the disciples returned joyously, they said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons submit themselves to us in your name. In other words, these followers of Jesus could not wait to get back and tell their Lord all that they had seen. About all the healing that had taken place. About all the receptive ears that had sucked in their teaching. About all the lives that were transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. About all the villages that had corporately decided to become disciples of the kingdom of God. And when they all put these stories together, there was words that were completely inadequate to describe the awe and mystery and wonder of all that they had seen. So they decided to use the most colorful, fanciful, cosmic, even supernatural language at the They said, Lord, even the demons were submitting to us in your name. That's as powerful and as poignant a description of a successful mission as you will ever see in the Gospel of Luke. And it happened here in this passage. And I would tell you that if we were to find words to describe for Jesus what we have seen in the mission field over the past eight years, we would probably use the same language. Just think about all that you have experienced fulfilling the mission of the church in the eight years since we have been apart. I've been watching and admiring even from a distance, long before I even dreamt of the possibility of coming back as your senior pastor, watching in awe of all the ways that you all have made God's love real over these years apart. Since 2007, 900 of you have joined the church. 900 new faces, fresh stories, willing and able souls who have chosen this congregation to be your community of faith, to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. That's amazing. That's astonishing. In 2012, you all were given the incredible privilege and the sacred burden of hosting the general conference for the entire denomination the entire world of Methodists came and converged right at your doorstep and you pulled off a hosting responsibility that was 
absolutely magnificent. The following year, you hosted the large church initiative. 500 clergy and lay people from the largest churches in the denomination. And you had a chance to share your story of transformation and possibility throughout the entire connection. But you know what? This hasn't been about making a name for yourself the past eight years. This has been about making God's love real to the people who most need it. I've watched in awe as mission teams have gone both near and far to offer God's transformative love to the people of Cuba, Nicaragua, Guatemala, South Africa, Honduras. And even here on our very front doorstep, you have transformed the lives of people who are the least and the lost among us. The open arms ministry, which just started as a simple peanut butter and jelly sandwich ministry right here on our front steps, has now blossomed into 200 men and women who come to this place every Sunday morning, not just for food, but for a chance to transition into a new life. Job placement services, clothing, even a place to collect their mail. By every standard, you all have displayed faithfulness and generosity, contributing your time as well as thousands and thousands of dollars to make a difference both here and far. And as an observer, all I can say is this, Hyde Park, even the demons have submitted to Jesus. As you have combated injustice and suffering and discrimination and poverty in every aspect, even those demons have submitted to the name of Jesus. And by the way, I can report the same thing. Even 1,600 miles away, in a wonderful little town called Cherokee, Iowa, demons submitted to the name of Jesus. People who joined the church, experiencing new life and love. People whose homes were ravaged by devastating floods in Cherokee two out of the past three years, experienced the witness of St. Paul's United Methodist as it became an epicenter of relief and recovery. As that church regained its focus on its mission and vision and offered new, wonderful, creative programming, it put God's love into action in a remarkable way. And I can say the same thing to you. Reporting back here from the mission field, even the demons submitted to the name of Jesus. No wonder the disciples were joyful. This was a lot of good news on July 12, 2015. But you know what? That's not what gave Jesus joy. You would have thought this would be the moment in Luke's narrative that Jesus would have been jumping up and down for joy. At, at the very least, we would think that Jesus would be joyful that all 72 came back. I mean, after all, he sent them out as lambs among the wolves. The fact that all 72 came back in one piece ought to make Jesus a little giddy. But even that, notwithstanding, the fact that they came back with these amazing reports, all of this wonderful news of what they'd experienced out in the mission field, you would think that is what should have made Jesus joyful. But it's not. In fact, when you get to the very next verse in this story, you kind of get the sense that Jesus is a bit of a fuddy-duddy. 
I mean, he's there to sort of temper all of the enthusiasm, to pull in the reins from all of this joy. I mean, here, here is what he said in the very next verse. The actual words are on the screen. I'm going to give you a little bit of my paraphrase here. Because the next thing that Jesus said was this. Huh. So, uh, you saw demons submitting to my name, huh? Well, I saw Satan fall like a he- out of heaven like lightning. How about that? And you think that was so cool what you did, huh? All right, well, remember, you couldn't have done anything like that if I wasn't there to give you power. All of what you did, all of what you experienced is because of what I did through you. You think it's so cool what you saw? Well, let me tell you, I'm Jesus. You're not. (laughs) And I'd like to think that at that very moment, the disciples looked down at the ground and said, okay, Jesus, we get it. Thank you. (laughs) But then here comes the pivot. Here comes the surprise. Because just at the very moment you think Jesus is going to pop the balloon of the disciples' joy, that's when Jesus starts to bubble up and burst. You can almost see the little twinkle in his eye. You can almost see the little curl in the corner of his mouth. Because he knows something that he's about to reveal to these disciples that's going to change everything. It's going to change the way they see what the mission of the church is all about. And once he reveals this to his disciples, there will be only one response. Once the disciples get it, there will be only one response. So Jesus says this. The very next verse, he says, Nevertheless, don't rejoice because the spirits submit to you. Rejoice. Instead, that your names are written in heaven. And I can picture it. All of a sudden, as soon as those words left the mouth of Jesus, there was a dawning realization that settled into the faces of those disciples. All of a sudden, they saw this experience in a brand new way, a much bigger and broader way than they even imagined. When the light bulbs of those faces started to go off, and when Jesus knew these disciples got it, it's here, right here in Luke's gospel, where Luke records this moment in a way that only Luke can, where he says in verse 21, at that very moment, Jesus overflowed with joy from the Holy Spirit. Right there. Which kind of makes us wonder, what exactly is it that Jesus told the disciples? What was the meaning of the message that he told them? And what was so transformative for those disciples to hear that message? What's the big deal about saying that their names are written in heaven? It's because this is what Jesus was telling them. He was saying to those disciples, you ain't seen nothing yet. The story is not over. 
Don't rest on your laurels. Don't get fixated on the past. There are brighter days ahead, even brighter than the ones that you've seen. That's what heaven means, by the way. Whenever Jesus talks about heaven in the Gospels, he doesn't talk about it in a, in a way of suggesting a place where we go after we die. It's not about pearly gates. It's not about a mansion with some glorious rooms. It's about a future possibility, an envisioned reality that can become true today when the people of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, make it real today. Heaven is that reality that is promised to us that can be realized right now if we work on it. And so what he's telling the disciples is this. If you think what you have seen here in this finite fixed period of time here on this earth is a big deal, then I want to promise you that if you can take all of the success of the past and if you can remember who you are and if you can channel it to faithful work to realize the future today, then you can see heaven right now because your names are written there. And when Jesus said that, and when the disciples began to realize that they hadn't seen nothing yet, and when they realized that what they had experienced over these past eight years is just a foretaste of what can happen, If they get busy, get to work, hunker down, and return afresh to their commitments to Jesus, then it filled Jesus with joy. And it filled them with joy. So here's the deal. Jesus would like to feel that joy again. And now the camera turns its focus on us. Sure, there's a lot to celebrate over these past eight years. We can report together all of the wonderful things that we've seen and experienced. But Jesus is calling us to even greater things than this. I can't wait to see what that is. I count it as a deep and humbling privilege to be your senior pastor as we venture into that future together. Because I know this. I don't know what the future is, but I know this. Jesus is calling us to faithfulness today. Not to get fixated on the past, but to honor our past by remembering our DNA and our heritage and applying it to faithful work in the present so that the future can be realized now. And that, frankly, that is what this entire return sermon series is all about for the next eight weeks. It's not about my returning to you all. It's about all of us returning to God. We will hear story after story in the Bible of people who had wandered away but were called back to return to faithfulness. And as we watch these stories unfold between now and the end of August... We will be called to return to our faithful commitments to God through our prayer, through our presence, through our gifts, through our service, and through our witness. I would invite you, don't miss a Sunday. And if you know you're going to be gone, watch the services live online 
or watch them in sermon archive on the website. And you don't just have to hear me, by the way. We've got a lot of good preachers here. And on Sunday morning, go to any one of these five worship services and let's all be led together to return to our faithful commitments to make real God's love. Because you know what? When we honor our past and remember our heritage and renew our commitments to work faithfully in the present to see the future realized today, then there's only one response. Jesus feels joy. And I'd love for us to make that happen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this invitation to remember that the work is not finished and that there are bright days ahead for the people called Hyde Park United Methodist Church. You've called us to build the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And we invite the power of your spirit to guide us in all ways as we work to be faithful to your calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.